My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to the fourth episode in Season 2 of the 21st Century Creative. This week, I'm delighted to welcome one of my mentors to the show, the distinguished poet Mimi Calvati. I first met Mimi back in 2002 when I started attending her classes at the Poetry School in London, and since then she's had a big influence on me as a writer. She also has some very interesting ideas about the nature of creativity that have implications for any creative person. So I was very pleased that I could travel to London and record not just an interview with Mimi, but also some of her poems, which she reads for us beautifully. Before we get to the interview, I thought this would be a good week to think about the value of teachers in our lives and the difference you can make to your own work by seeking out the right teacher at the right time. Today's theme is learn from the best in the world. If you want to do something amazing, the good news is somebody somewhere has already done something similar. So you can save yourself a lot of time, effort and suffering by tracking them down and learning from their example. Now, A lot of creators think doing something original means avoiding any kind of influence, but actually the reverse is true. You usually start by watching someone else, wishing you could be a bit like them and following their example. Except that you never make an exact copy. You take something of what they do and add your own twist to it, and it turns into something that looks and feels all your own. When Stephen Sondheim was 10 years old, He was friends with a boy called James Hammerstein. James's father was Oscar Hammerstein of Rogers and Hammerstein fame. Now, at this time, the young Sondheim had written a musical that was performed at his school and which had gone down really well, so everyone was praising his precocious talent. But Sondheim wasn't satisfied with this, and knowing Oscar Hammerstein's achievements, he asked him a very brave question. He asked Hammerstein to critique his musical as if he had never heard of its author. Hammerstein's response was brutal. He said it was the worst thing he had ever seen. But if you want to know why it's terrible, I'll tell you. And he spent a whole day going through Sondheim's musical, pulling it apart and showing the young composer how to make it better. Sondheim later said, In that afternoon, I learned more about songwriting and the musical theatre than most people learn in a lifetime. Now, of course, Sondheim is the revered master with a string of musical hits behind him. Now, obviously, he would never have achieved what he's done without talent and hard work. But he was also brave enough and humble enough to ask for help from a more experienced teacher. In my own career, I've been blessed with a series of world-class mentors. John Eaton in psychotherapy, Mimi Calvati in poetry, Brian Clark in marketing, Stephen Pressfield in writing about the creative life, Peleg Top and Rich Litvin in coaching, 
and Kristin Linklater in speaking verse. Now, I will never surpass any of them in their chosen field, but I don't have to. I'm on my own path. And the point of mentorship is to take what you can from your teacher and apply it in your own way. And when you have multiple mentors, a lot of the value you create comes from your unique blend of their different influences. So I know several students who work with each of my mentors who are further along that particular path than I am. But I don't know anyone who has quite the same mix of mentors as I do. I say I've been blessed with these mentors, but it wasn't entirely down to luck. In every case, I either reached out to the person directly or I did something that got me on their radar and led to a connection. John Eaton, Mimi Calvati and Kristen Linklater were all teaching classes, so I signed up as a student. Brian Clark was teaching an online course, so I joined it. And based on what I learned in the course, I sent a joint venture proposal to him and his partner, Tony Clark. It felt like a long shot, but they actually accepted it the very next day. And we ended up launching the Lateral Action website together. Writing the Lateral Action blog was how I got on Stephen Pressfield's radar. One of his teams saw the blog and sent it to Steve. Soon afterwards, I was interviewing him for the blog, and we've been in touch ever since. My blogging and book writing also brought me invitations to speak at conferences in the US. I met Peleg Top when we were both speaking at the How Design Conference in Boston, and our friendship and working relationship developed from there. So, if you're really committed to being the best you can be, take some time to reflect on these questions. Who's the best in the world at what I do? How did they get to be that good? Have they written or spoken about this process or been interviewed about it? What can I learn from their example? Finally, if you really want to take things to the next level, ask yourself these questions. Do they take students or give public talks? How can I get on their radar and into their circle of influence? If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free 
by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Mimi Calvati is one of the foremost poets currently writing in the UK. She was born in Tehran in Iran and grew up on the Isle of Wight in England. She's the author of eight collections of poetry and the editor of several anthologies. Her awards and commendations include a Chumley Award and being shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize, the biggest prize in UK poetry. Mimi is also the founder of the Poetry School, where professional poets teach the art and craft of poetry. Fifteen years ago, I walked into Mimi's class at the Poetry School, and it changed my life. Mimi challenged and encouraged me in a way no other writing teacher has ever done, and I owe her a huge debt of gratitude for the difference she's made to my poetry. When I won third prize in the Stephen Spender Prize for my translation of Chaucer, Mimi was the first person I told outside my family, because she was the one who encouraged me to persist with the translation. When I was starting out, and it felt like a crazy project to take on. And it was her feedback that helped me get it to a level where it was recognised by the judges. And I'm far from alone in this. I know plenty of other poets who've published books and won prizes, and who have said it would never have happened without Mimi's help as a teacher and mentor. So. Mimi has a rare gift. Not only is she an outstanding poet herself, but she has an extraordinary gift for reading other people's work and giving them feedback that helps them get to the heart of their own writing. I've been quoting Mimi's words of wisdom for years with coaching clients in my books and on this podcast, so I'm delighted I was able to record this conversation and let you hear Mimi for yourself. In this conversation, Mimi talks about her own practice as a poet and offers some unusual insights into the nature of the creative process, especially the role of criticism, that will apply to you whatever your creative discipline. Not only that, but Mimi also reads several poems from her latest book, the very selected Mimi Calvati. Welcome to the show, Mimi. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on it. Could we start with a poem? Yes, absolutely. So, obviously you can't hear, you can't see this as you're listening, but Mimi's holding a very lovely, a very selected Mimi Calvatis. This is a a very distilled selected poem, is that right, Mimi? Yes, this is a pamphlet of poems that have been selected from my previous selected poems, and hence (laughs) became very selected. Um, And in it are two or three poems from each of my different collections. So I'll read a poem um, from a sort of midway collection, Mm -hmm. I would say, or maybe quite an early one, and it's a sonnet. And it's for my daughter, who is now 44, but in the poem I'm remembering when she was first born. Mm. And she was born in Iran, in Tehran. And uh, we used to put her pram out on the veranda. And it was a lovely, very old-style Persian garden. Gosh. Um, 
So, and maybe we should mention as well for people who are not familiar with you that you were actually born in Iran, weren't you? Yes, I, I was born in Iran, but I was sent to England on my own, in fact, um, when I was six. Gosh. So I went from Tehran to Shanklin on the Isle of Wight that, to boarding school there. Wow, that's quite a journey, I mean, culturally <laughs> as, well, as well as geographically. Right. That's right. So at this point, um, well, I had spent all my childhood and growing up in England. In fact, most of my life I've spent in England. Yeah. But at this point, I'd gone with my then husband, my daughter's father, um, for a, we had a three-year visit in Iran, mm -hmm. and she was born there. Right. Sonnet for my daughter. Come close, the flower says, and we come close, close enough to lift, cup and smell the rose, breathe in a perfume deep enough to find language for it. But words having grown unkind, think back instead to a time before we knew what we know now, when every word was true and roses smelt divine. What went wrong? long before the breath of a cradle song. Some lives fall, some flower, and some are granted birthrights, a veranda, a sunken quadrant of old rose trees, a fountain dry as ground, but still a fountain, in sense if not in sound. Like a rose she slept in the morning sun, each vein a small blue river, each eyelash shone. Wow, thank you, Mimi. So, poetry, What? how did you end up as a poet? Because you, originally you were in the theatre, weren't you? I was, and um, getting into poetry actually happened much like pretty much everything in my life has happened by accident <laughs> and with me in my passive way just going with the flow um, what happened was yes as you say I was working in theatre but at the time and this was in London I was on my own um, with two small children so obviously from a practical point of view I couldn't work in theatre so my neighbour said um, oh why don't you do a, a writing course and um, maybe do script writing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, yeah, that's quite a good idea. I could try maybe script writing for radio. I didn't know mm. the first thing about <laughs> script writing. Um, so I managed to go on one of those Arvon Foundation residential courses. Mm -hmm. And the course was script writing slash poetry. Right. So I arrived on the course with this very half-baked radio script and um, it turned out that actually nobody was really interested in script writing. <laughs> Everyone was doing the poetry side. Right. And the tutors as well seemed to be much more interested in that. And they, I, I sort of gave them my script to read and they sort of shrugged and then said, <laughs> well, just go and write some poems. So I went, oh, oh OK. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote two or three poems during that week and um, and then carried on, really. I just thought, oh, this is quite nice. <laughs> but how come you carried on? Because 
you know, a lot of people might thought, okay, well, that was an interesting week. What was it about poetry that, that grabbed you? Um, you know, Mark, I think one aspect that's completely overlooked because we're so fascinated by, you know, the creative side of things is the practical side. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing about writing poetry is, from a practical point of view, you only need paper, (laughs) pen, paper, pencil, um, and also no space, you know. I mean, if you think about it, like if you're doing theatre work or dance Mm -hmm. or even painting, you need a studio or something, so you don't need physical space. You don't need anybody else. All you need is a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that was really a large part of it because at, at that time, you know, money was short. I was busy with my hands full with the two kids. Um, and also, I think I felt that it might be something I would be reasonably good at. Um I can't say it was from any burning passion to be a poet. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, when I was at school, you know, I was supposedly quite good at English. My teachers used to say, oh, you should be a writer. And I'd be secretly appalled at the idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think, oh, God, how dreary. (laughs) Stuck with an old typewriter in some room all by myself and a bottle of whiskey was my sort of image Mm -hmm. of a writer, you know. But also I used to think, but I would have nothing to say. What would I write about? Mm -hmm. And um, the glory of poetry is that that is actually an ideal way, I think, to enter into writing poetry, to have nothing to say and to have nothing to write about and let the poem do it for you. <laughs> OK, you need, to, you need to tell us more about this. Okay. <laughs> How do I do that? And I'm asking <laughs> for personal reasons as well. <laughs> um, well, I'm talking actually very much about lyric poetry rather mm. than narrative yeah. poetry or dramatic poetry. Um, I think there's a misconception... Um, at least in the case of some poets, that uh, a poet should have some burning idea or feeling Mm -hmm. to express and that before you write the poem, you know what you want to say. There's something you passionately want to put into words and then it's just a matter of finding the best words to put it in. Mm. Whereas I think how it really works is that you might start with an idea of something to say or to express from a feeling or from an event or an experience. But the actual act of writing is more to do with discovering what you might have to say that Mm. you're not aware of or maybe discovering... You have something new to say about an old thought that you've maybe had for a long time and got set in stone and the poem shakes it up a bit and Uh throws a new light on it. Um, Or even, in fact, discovering what you feel and if indeed you do feel. That, that to me, is quite important. Um, I think the idea that a 
poet expresses intensely felt feelings is not necessarily true. I think quite a lot of poets, such as, um, say, T.S. Eliot Mm -hmm. or the American Elizabeth Bishop, struggle with non-feeling, with possibly a sense of numbness somewhere in the soul. And the act of writing a poetry can be oddly reassuring because you write a poem and then you discover, oh, goodness, I actually had a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I did feel something and and that's the aspect to me that's exciting and that also makes me feel it fits me as a person quite well. So one word I'm hearing several times for you is discovery here in the actual process of writing and it puts me in mind of something that you said in a class years ago it was either to me or to somebody sitting next to me but I kind of felt the full (laughs) force of it was you said well you know this 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 is quite a nicely written draft it's well crafted the imagery the diction the form are very well handled but the trouble is you knew everything that was in it before you sat down to write it and that's why poetry hasn't walked in and that really stayed with me just that idea that if there isn't a surprise, if there isn't a discovery, then it's not going to be poetry. Well, you've put it so much better than I ever could. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's very succinct. I mean, we, we hear general statements or we make them ourselves, such as poetry should be surprising mm. or fresh. But how? I mean, you can't set out to be surprising. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's impossible. You know, you can't set out to yeah. be fresh. So, so the poet herself or himself has to be surprised. Exactly. So it's when you yourself you t- are surprised, you take yourself by surprise, you didn't expect to find yourself having said that or mm-hmm. felt that or thought that, that then the reader on reading the poem will experience that same sense of surprise and hopefully a bit of delight or... Yeah. 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 And is this one of the things that keeps you coming back to poetry after all this time? Um, It's really hard to say what keeps one coming back. I mean, partly I'm a creature of habit and once I do one thing I tend to just go on doing it (laughs) Um, so the downside is I'm quite stick in the mud but the upside is I have stamina Mm -hmm. Um, so that's partly to do with temperament that I just keep coming back to it because I tend to do that anyway I keep going to the same cafes you know (laughs) Um, or keep seeing the same friends I've had for a very long time Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, poetry, it's, um, you can't ever finish it. I mean, it's just an endless fountain. It just endlessly gives you pleasure to read. It's endlessly surprising, hopefully, if you're writing it, um, so long as you don't keep writing the same poem, as it were, so long as you don't keep doing what you know you can do and constantly challenge yourself with something um, a a little beyond your reach. 
So I think it's in the nature of poetry that it never gets used up. Mm. And you're sometimes described as a formalist or even a, a new formalist. Do you do those labels resonate with you at all? Do you know where people are coming from when they use that kind of description? Um, well, yes, I, th I think they, <laughs> they use those labels if you write in traditional received forms, such as sonnets, or you use rhyme and meter. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure that it's completely accurate because, in fact, I write both in received forms and also in free verse where you don't yeah. have to rhyme or use meter um, or have a strict kind of structure to adhere to. So I think I do about 50-50. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's because not that many contemporary poets do write like yeah. you do yourself, Mark, so well in meter and rhyme. I mean, not... You know, the majority of poets are not writing. Yeah. And um, that more, if I say traditional, makes it sound very fuddy-duddy because right, actually right. it can and be very fresh <clears throat> and very new and always can be renewed. Yeah. Um, but because I suppose uh, it's more a minority thing, that's why the label might get stuck to you. You know, I mean, nobody's going to call you a free versist, are they? Because yeah, <laughs> everybody writes free verse, exactly. Yeah. Yes. But this is very much one of the things I get from, A, from reading your poetry and also having been to your classes for a long time, is just the freshness of that you, you can find in a traditional form. It's, um, well... It's in the nature of form itself, isn't it? That it's endlessly reimaginable, mm -hmm. um, and quite often forms, I think, generally are renewed by slightly changing the strictures or the requirements of the form. Mm -hmm. For example, a sonnet traditionally would be fourteen lines. Well, people have written. 20-line sonnets or 15-line sonnets. Yeah. So in some sense, they're changing the form itself. Yeah. But I'm personally more fascinated by not changing the strictures of the form and seeing how, how you can nevertheless transform it. That seems more exciting. How do you change something without changing it? Um, how do you make a sonnet um, still feel very contemporary? Well, that's a great question. How do you? I don't know. <laughs> Just keep trying. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's a lot to do with diction because language changes all the time. Yeah. And as you know, when you start first writing in formal schemes, like with meter the tendency is to unconsciously slip back into a kind of 19th century yeah. diction as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have constantly to be resisting that because you can hear the echoes in your ear of all the poetry that has got, gone before and that's still echoing. Mm. 
that's that's the chanic and you know because maybe in the 16th century it was easier because you could just reverse the word order you know shunt a line to the end to make it rhyme but that these days that wouldn't pass muster would it yes exactly then the no-nos change yeah what you can't get away with yeah so you can't get away obviously with thee and thou unless <laughs> for some specific purpose um, unless you're using very consciously <laughs> yes and you, you can't say he did walk instead of he walked um, yeah. and these kind of things but then there are other things we can do like we can use contractions you know um, I can say I'm not instead of I am not, Mm -hmm. if I need two syllables instead of three. (laughs) Yeah. And is it for you a very different experience or process when you're writing traditional form versus free verse? Yes, hugely different. I mean, the general principles are the same. Yeah. The idea that, you know, this is a quest, that hopefully you're going to discover something or something will be revealed to you i quite like the idea of the poet being in a passive role rather than the active agent Mm -hmm. that i suppose that's like keats's um famous negative capability that you are passively there but with your ear and all your senses very alive so that you can receive something being revealed to you rather than you actively revealing it so those kind of dynamics, I suppose, hold absolutely true for either. But my even my writing process alters radically. When I write free verse, I tend actually to write very, very fast in prose. Mm-hmm. And then I edit it and shape it into what I hope is a poem. Yeah. Whereas writing in meter and rhyme, that's, that would be quite impossible. So I write, in fact, quite slowly, mm-hmm. line by line. Yeah. And I try to get one line feeling right before I go to, on to the next line and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it's very much slower and also very, very much more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> And possibly you have a greater sense of satisfaction if it works, I think, because it is di- it is difficult. The fascination of what's difficult. Yes, exactly. The downside being that um, all the lovely subtleties of the things you have pulled off, um, most people are not going to notice. <laughs> <laughs> so you won't get any brownie points, you know. But you have the satisfaction of knowing you've done it. Yes. And maybe your ideal reader will pick it up. Yes, your ideal reader would. Yeah. Who's yeah. your ideal reader? Um, it's not a specific person, but it is an image in my mind of somebody really who in every respect is a hundred times more well-read, more acute, more perceptive, more attuned to everything about poetry, um, more experienced, more (laughs) big-hearted, more everything than I am. And is it encouraging or intimidating to have this? (laughs) Yes, yes, it's intimidating 
but it's also reassuring because it, it is really true that very often um, people are not nowadays because generally people aren't that versed in formal mm-hmm. poetry. Um, so in general, they're not necessarily picking up on things from a technical or a detail point of view. Whereas if you have an imaginary reader who is doing all of that, you can think secretly to yourself, <laughs> well, at least she or he will. <laughs> yes, otherwise you'd be on your own, wouldn't you? Right, and that wouldn't do. OK, could we have another poem, Mimi? Yes. Um, well, since we've been talking about formal poetry, I read a ghazal, which is an old, it comes from Persia originally, the form, but is also um, very loved, I would say, and widely used still in Arabic, in Urdu and so on. And this one I'm going to read is actually a, a translation from the 14th century Sufi poet Hafez, Mm-hmm. from Persia, yeah. who was a Sufi, and he is Iran's best-loved poet, mm-hmm. I'd say. It took me a year to write this poem, and it's wow. not even mine. It's, um, I'd say it's, a, it's an imitation or a translation, um, not a strict word-for-word one, right. um, but I hope faithful. Ghazal. After half airs. However large earth's garden, mine's enough. One rose and the shade of a vine's enough. I don't want more wealth, I don't need more dross. The grape has its bloom and it shines enough. What can paradise offer us beggars and fools? What ecstasy when wine's enough? Look at the stream as it winds out of sight. One glance, one glimpse of a chine's enough. Like the sun in bazaars, streaming in shafts, any slant on the grand design's enough. When you're here, my love, what more could I want? Just mentioning love in a line's enough. Heaven can wait. When we're under one roof, no heaven, however divine's enough. I've no grounds for complaint. As Harfez says, isn't a gazelle that he signs enough? <laughs> Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. So, I mean, just listening to that, A, I can see why it took a year. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Because, and it's... Obviously, if you're listening to this for the first... and You're new to the gazelle, you know, that refrain with the repeated rhyme is so distinctive and so hard to do because it would be so if it gets too sing-song then it falls flat and yet you've got to get it you're really on the knife edge of just it being musical but without it being too much and I mean you must have how many rhymes did you go through in order to get to that I don't think I necessarily went through that many rhymes. In fact, I think the rhymes I finally used, I had very early on. Mm -hmm. But the wording that leads up to it 
that's the hard bit. Um, and you're absolutely right. You, you are on a knife edge. And also you're dealing with very different conventions. You know, the conventions of what we find pleasurable and or admirable in English poetry or English language poetry are very different to those that, say, an Iranian mm-hmm. might find or expect. So, for example, repetition. You know, we don't really like too much repetition, yeah. Yeah. although the whole tradition of English poetry, I mean, the whole essence of poetry is about repetition, mm-hmm. really. Um, but we think, I suppose, that it's a bit... Um, boring or too old-fashioned or fuddy-duddy or just monotonous. Um, So those are the things that are very difficult to deal with. Mm. Um, Our ideas about sentimentality are very different. We're terrified of being sentimental in the English or British culture. Yeah. As Iranians, I don't think even have a name for sentiment, <laughs> a word for sentimentality. Really? No, it's all romantic, romantique, you know. Right. They, and that's okay. And that's all lovely. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. And we don't have a praise um, tradition now, the panegyric, you know, in English culture is also to some extent fallen out of disuse. Satire is still going strong. Satire is going strong. And in fact, there's a lot of satire in this very early this sort of medieval Persian poetry. A lot of satire. Um, so that's good. Yeah, so there are overlaps, but also great gulfs and chasms. And, you know, what would you say your relationship is to the classical Persian poets? Well, it's almost non-existent in the sense that I can't read Farsi. I've never, um, because I came to England when I was six, I'd never been to school in Iran, so I'd never learned to read and write in the first place. Um, So I can't read it in the original. And even if I could, um, my Farsi is so... Um, childlike really it's very primitive Mm -hmm. (laughs) I couldn't understand it so I would actually have to have somebody translate it for me Mm -hmm. almost word for word Um, so I don't really have a relationship to it except through translation and in translation and yet it was important enough for you to spend the time you know you were drawn to the Hafez um, well, I was drawn to the form of the Ghazal, but then if you think about it, you know, most of our forms have come from different languages and cultures. Yeah. Sonnet from Italy, you know, the Villanelle from France mm-hmm. and so on, the Pantum is a Malay form. Yeah. And I'm interested in these different forms yeah. and what they embody, what they're really about, what their spirit is. And I was also very fascinated by how a poet like Hafez is so universally loved in Iran and quoted even by um, the many, many people who are illiterate. Mm -hmm. They know vast dreams by heart and they're constantly quoting him. Honestly, if you go into a taxi, say get into a taxi and you say, yes, can you take me to such and such a boulevard? Mm -hmm. 
They'll say, yes, yes, as Harfez says, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then give you some whacking long quote that you don't understand, you know. It would be a bit like getting into a black cab in London and have them start quoting Chaucer. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's interesting also is um, I don't know how much or how little the language, well, the Farsi has changed because, as you say, you know, for us to read Chaucer now mm. for the average person is, is really, really difficult. As people don't seem to have that same difficulty mm. with Harfez. And the language is, is not, as we would imagine, very ornate and flowery. It actually seems to me quite pure. And, mm-hmm. uh, has that kind of simplicity that we find, say, in um, translations of Basho, you know. Yeah. One big thing I learned from you is the joy of rewriting. You know, I think when I first met you, I was producing drafts and maybe there would be a bit of tweaking, but I would kind of (laughs) hope that my work was done. (laughs) And you made it fairly clear to me that there was quite a lot more work to be done, which on one level, my heart sank, but on another level, actually, you you showed me the, the pleasure of it and we there was one course I took with you was was I think it was a whole year wasn't it the critical faculty yes it was and it was mm. all about how to use the critical faculty as part of your writing process so could you say something about that well that's almost like saying how do you write a poem you know right. <laughs> um, but yeah you're absolutely right uh, in fact resort I read something somebody forwarded me a link to an article, I can't remember where it was um, published, but it was Murad Barghouti, the pa- Palestinian poet, if I mm-hmm. have to check that, okay. who said that ri- writing is the act of editing. Ooh. So going as far as to say one actually equals the other. Right. So... Because really anybody can express something in language and put it on a piece of paper. It's what you do with it then that is very much to do with rewriting and editing that um, determines whether it is a real poem or not. Um, So I don't see the creative and the critical faculty really as being two separate things. I think the thing we think of as a creative faculty is what produces the initial impulse to write a poem, Mm -hmm. that you suddenly have a feeling or a line comes to you or you see an image or you've experienced some kind of event and you sort of go, ooh, I must write, you know, and then you write something that you could call a first draft. Yeah. I suppose that, for me, is the creative impulse. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely crucial, because without it, you would never even write the poem in the first place. It gives you... It's the fuel that drives you to write the poem. But from there on, the act of writing poetry is how do you shape it, how do you edit it, how do you discover the right form for it... Um, How do you use the critical faculty to interrogate it? To say, is that really true? 
does that thought really connect with the other thought? Um, you know, a, a million questions mm-hmm. that run so far through your mind you can't even enumerate them. Um, that is the critical faculty creatively in relationship to the poem, interrogating it and discovering things in it and saying no to it and saying yes to it and saying maybe to it. (laughs) Mm. Um, Yes, uh, and for me that's the exciting part. You see that? I don't see it as, as the sort of cold... Because I think our problem is with the word critical, yeah. which has a quite a derogatory, negative mm. connotation, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, we think of it as yes. saying something nasty or cutting about Exactly, it. exactly, or getting in the way yeah. of the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. The true stuff, or the sincere stuff, or the creative, imaginative stuff. I think that's just because of unfortunately the word critical having those connotations if we could call it something like um, the architectural faculty (laughs) or something (laughs) or have some sort of more positive um, seductive word adjective for it yeah I mean even good. if you call it analytical it still sounds a bit it too sounds cerebral right. doesn't it yeah. exactly. because what I got from you is it's not I mean yes you are using your your mind you are thinking but you're also bringing your heart into play and thinking well does this feel oh, yes absolutely because yeah you have to say well actually aren't you sentimentalizing aren't you over dramatizing that is is that really true is that really real mm-hmm. yeah it's. I think it's a truth-finding faculty. Oh, I like that. Yes. Because all the time you're trying to get at the truth, which yeah. could be an emotional truth or an intellectual truth or an aesthetic truth mm-hmm. or a formal truth, um, many kinds of truths. But I think that's essentially what it is. And I think this is so Im- important and potentially exciting as you say because and this goes beyond poetry you know there's all kinds of artists and creators that think that the creative impulse needs to be protected from the critical impulse or from criticism and there's almost a a concern that if you bring in your your thinking faculty then and and you analyze it too much you're going to kill the the pure impulse but actually what you're saying is actually can open it up. I think if it's used well, it mm. opens it up. I think if you don't use it well, and it's true that if, you know, I've we've all had the experience where we work on a poem, we work on it, and we work on it, and the, in the end we've killed the wretched yeah. thing. You know, it's dead on its feet. Yeah. But that's not the fault of the critical faculty. It's because we haven't used it well. We've used it insensitively. So, what, I mean, if somebody's listening to this thinking, okay, I want to have a go. Yes. <laughs> I want to use it more creatively and better. Is there one or two things they could focus on that would help them do that? Well, I think when it comes to language, I mean, that's what we're talking about, is mm. how the use of language 
very simple editing practices, for want of a better word, are helpful and can be actually quite exciting, even though they're small and seemingly humdrum. For example, you could write down freely a short paragraph, say, about anything you like. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm so not interested in subject matter that I can't even <laughs> make my mind dream up one, you know. Yeah. So therefore I say, anything you like, such yeah. as, you know, um, how you went to the cafe yesterday or something. And then it's a bit like text me- messages, isn't it, where you have to have a certain number of characters. You could then say to yourself, okay, I will now write, rewrite this with a certain word count, for example, mm-hmm. or, and ideally make it much shorter than it actually yeah. is, or I will rewrite it all as one sentence mm-hmm. without using lots of ands and cheating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these playful things with language, it's just like I imagine... An artist with paint, where you just get a blob of paint and squiggle it around on the canvas and see what it suggests to you. Right, so at that point it starts to become a game. It starts to become a process of discovery. Mm -hmm. Because ideally, um, say you wrote a paragraph about your visit to the cafe and then you reduced it by half. Mm -hmm. Ideally, what would happen is not that it is the same experience um, cut down to half its size and somehow uh, crystallised or preceded. Ideally, it would have become actually a very different kind of experience. The feel of it would be different. The quality would be different. Mm -hmm. So you discover a different aspect to it. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Rather than just making it shorter, which is boring. And the, and the same if you have to rewrite it as one sentence. <laughs> um, you would have to discover different shapes of thought in order to manipulate the syntax yeah. into not coming to a closure. Um it would be like keeping three balls up in the air at the same time. Mm. And therefore, those different shapes of thought would throw the elements that you had in your writing into different relationship with each other. Ideally. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, but then you can always try another, another experiment. So... Mimi, you're, you know, now looking back, six collections, how do you think you've changed as a poet since you started out? Um, I hope to God I'm a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I started, when I first started writing, I was really obscure. In fact, I came across, quite a while ago, this is, Nevertheless, I came across these early drafts and I could not understand a word. I was saying, what is this? And I remember at the time 
thinking it was perfectly clear and why were other people saying what on earth are you talking about you know so hopefully i have gained in some clarity Mm. um at least i've understood how obscurity can work i think Mm. um i think i've uh, understood my limitations not in a miserable kind of oh my god i can't (laughs) do that kind of way but, I mean, we all have limitations. Yeah. There's no single person can do everything. And I'm happy to, I mean, make the best of it. Sounds a bit of a compromise. I don't feel it like that. It's the same as playing to your strengths, isn't it? So I'm happy to work within those limitations without actually feeling that that is a sacrifice or a compromise. I mm. think it's more an advance a development. Mm-hmm. I think it takes a certain amount of courage. And also, I think my language has gained also a little more in courage in the sense of being closer to the way I think and speak without being too frightened that I sound stupid or unlettered or unsophisticated or not poetic or something. Mm. And what can we expect from you next? Well, I'm now working on a book of sonnets. Mm. Drawing on one theme, which I would be wary of trying to express at the moment, because it's, you know, in the middle, yeah. but it, it is drawing on um, my early life experiences of coming to England so young and then the loss of my first language, mm-hmm. my culture, my family history, yeah. or even knowing members of my family, and asking myself, well, rather than see that as a litany of losses, um, how has it made me who I am? And how do you, in general, give value to a life that doesn't neatly fall into a story? Because we're so I'm taken up these days with everybody telling their story, yeah. and especially people who might be silenced in other respects. Mm-hmm. Um, or might be people from other cultures or whatever. But in my case, I never really had a sense of having a story or knowing my own story. Um, So I'm interested in how do you give value to that? That's as far as I think I can go with it, yes. Okay, well, I look forward to that. And using the sonnet as a kind of lens to look at that. Yes. Um, Well, using the sonnet as a very small, it is a very tiny vessel, in which to capture different raindrops, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) A drop of this and a drop of that and a drop of the other. Mm. And hoping cumulatively it makes some kind of sense. But that I don't know yet. (laughs) Right, Okay. well, what's this space? So maybe we could have another poem to finish with. With pleasure. Seeing that I just mentioned this litany of losses, in a sense, I read a poem that 
maybe touches on that. I wrote this poem in Spain at um, a wonderful place called Almacera, which is the old olive press, where the English poet Christopher North runs writing courses, and I've been going every year for 12 years to tutor courses there. What it was. It was the pool and the blue umbrellas, blue awning. It was the blue and white life-size chess set on the terrace, wall of jasmine. It was the persimmon and palm side by side like two wise prophets and the view that dipped then rose, the swallows that turned the valley. It was the machinery of the old olive press, the silences and the voices in them calling. It was the water talking. It was the woman reading with her head propped, wearing glasses. The log pile under the overhanging staircase, mist and the mountains we took for granted. It was the blue humped hose and living wasps swimming on the surface. It was the chimneys. It was sleep. It was not having a mother. Neither father nor mother to comfort me. Thank you, Mina. Thank you, Mark, very much. So, one more thing before we finish up. This is the point where I invite my guests to set a challenge, a creative challenge to the listener based on what we've been talking about. What would be a fun thing for a listener to do, Mimi? Well, I found when I was sort of discovering some of the dynamics of making a poetry, I always found collage really mm -hmm. interesting. And I think it is wonderfully mimetic of what we were talking about, Mark, about the whole process of discovery and surprise. Yeah. yeah. So you can do this in quite a playful, mindless kind of way, especially when you're tired mm -hmm. and you don't have any energy. Yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, you quite like to do something. So it is a bit like fridge magnet poetry, I suppose. <laughs> but I think it's more fun to work with your own words. Yeah. So any piece of writing you have, could be a letter, it just could be something in a journal, or could even be something dry, like a report. Mm -hmm. um, I think it'd be quite fun to cut it up into very small pieces, literally, physically, yeah. with scissors, and to make the cuts at the places that are most disruptive. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, if you had um, a phrase like sitting by the Christmas tree, yeah. I would cut it after Christmas. Right. So I'd separate <laughs> Christmas and tree <laughs> rather than the more obvious yeah. place sitting by the... Yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> make life hard. Yeah. You know? 
So you end up with all these random bits of paper and you spread them all out on a table or on the floor or whatever and swivel them around and gradually reassemble mm-hmm. a text and see what it what it does or doesn't do, um, what you might get out of it. You might only get a few bits that somehow sing in some way or fizz, you know, fizzy. Um, But you'll get lots of um, surprising juxtapositions. And as I say, that's a lovely way of more or less discovering how I think the creative process works in so many arts, which most artists do say that they don't really know where they're going or what they're going to say or what they're going to paint or do Mm. do you know what I mean? Um, And it's the process itself that leads them to discovery. Great. That sounds like we've come full circle. Yes. Thank you, Mimi. (laughs) As always, it's been really inspiring to be in your company listening to your words of wisdom. Now, where should people start who are curious about your work? Would the very selected be a good place? I think actually it would, Mark, because it's got, um, as I say, two or three poems from the different collections. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a sort of best hits kind of album, (laughs) you know, Um, but it's a collection of short poems. Yeah written at different times of my life. A lot of the poems are autobiographical Mm -hmm. in some sense. And hopefully it's accessible. Okay, it's a lovely book. The Very Selected Mimi Calvati. It's actually just called The Very Selected Okay, well, we'll put a a link in the show notes, but obviously if you put that into Amazon or Google. Thank you. um, And also I'd like to draw people's attention to your website, mimikalvati.co.uk yes it is and that's m-i-m-i-k-h-a-l-v-a-t-i .co.uk so do go there start with the very selected and if you're like me you'll want to read all of the others as well after that so thank you so much Mimi thank you Mark it's always lovely to talk to you You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash 
Coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.